Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, it says, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things for many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? That's their way of saying, who hasn't touched you? And in verse 32, it says, and he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman Fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid. Only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed Jesus. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha, Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given to her to eat. In Mark chapter 5, in the first 20 verses, we saw a man miraculously, supernaturally delivered from demons. And now we're introduced to a suffering woman and will witness the resurrection of a little girl. We're basically introduced to a tale of two souls. One is a woman who has an issue of blood and the other is a man whose precious daughter is moments from death. And the passage speaks of sorrow. Faith. The two stories have one powerful lesson that the servant Jesus has power over crushing sorrow. In Mark's gospel, the servant has displayed power over sickness and power over storms and power over the spirits of darkness. 
But what about despair? What about depression? What about sorrow? And now Jesus will draw out the faith of a woman in great need and then the faith of a desperate father who wants nothing more than to see his little girl well. And there are three principal players in the unfolding drama. Three people who will experience the power of Jesus over illness and death. The first is Jairus. He's the local elder. He's the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. And it was an important position. It carried a certain amount of prestige and responsibility. And the second is an anonymous woman. We're not told her name. We're not told whether or not she's married. We're not told if she has a family. We're not told basically anything about her. Everything that's important to a person has been stripped from her. She has no home. No family that we know of, no friends that we know of. And it could very well be that even her religion has been stripped from her. And with little money she used to have has long since disappeared into the pockets of physicians who could provide no cure. And she has an embarrassing and incurable disease. And that illness has made her an outcast. And finally, a little girl. And this little girl cannot cry. And she can't exercise faith. And when Jesus reaches her, he finds only empty eyes and deaf ears and a cold, lifeless body. And the desperate anguish of a heartbroken mother and a crushed father. And the passage provides a peek into the compassion of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the sensitivity of our great Savior. But it also reminds us that faith, weak faith, desperate faith, even no faith, doesn't limit the servant who is the Lord of the universe. And these stories tell us how God brings faith into our lives and into the lives of those that he touches and that he has this ability to take our faith and help it grow. And the stories unite around three encounters that can help our faith grow, that can help us learn about God's power and Jesus' love. Because I need to again remind you of something that almost without exception, you are going to find yourself in a situation where human resources fail you. And you're going to need to lay hold of the power of Jesus. You're going to need to have the ability to lay hold of Jesus and lay hold of his power. And the ruler approaches Jesus in desperation in verses 22 through 24. And then this woman approaches Jesus in hopeless sorrow in verses 25 through 34. And then at the end, the ruler will approach Jesus in the most desperate of circumstances imaginable. And he'll be called upon to have believing faith in verses 35 through 43. So look at verse 21 again. And now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, remember in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it's evening and Jesus and his intrepid band of disciples, they leave Capernaum, they sail across the Sea of Galilee, they wind up on the other side. There they're met by a demoniac who is in chains, howling and screaming. He releases the demoniac. They get back in the boat. They sail back across the the Sea of Galilee. They lined in Capernaum. And there to greet Jesus is a great multitude that have gathered by the shore. And it says in verse 22, and behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. He assumed the position that the demoniac had earlier. Do you remember the demon-possessed man drawn 
came to Jesus and fell at his feet. Now Jairus comes, drawn to Jesus, falls at his feet. And look at verse 23. And begged him earnestly. In the original language, it's in the present imperative, which means he kept begging over and over and over again. My little daughter, my little daughter, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come, come, lay your hands on her that she She may be healed and she will live. And Jesus went with him. And the great multitude followed him and thronged him. I want to bring you to a place where you understand what's happening. I want you to imagine a crowd. A multitude, not tens, not hundreds, but thousands. That's what the word thronged means. Maybe you've been to a sporting event like a Bronco game or or a Rockies game. Maybe you've been in a, in a circumstance at a rock concert where hundreds and then thousands of people pressed and pushed and jostled and pressed and pushed and jostled. And I want you in your mind just for a moment To look into the faces of the people in the crowd. Look at the hundreds of faces. The thousands of people. And now I want you to hone in on one face in particular. It's the face of Jairus. He is going to be a public figure. He's the ruler of the synagogue. This is the same synagogue where Jesus healed the man with the withered hand. This is the same synagogue where he liberated a demonically possessed person. And as the ruler of the synagogue, I'm almost certain that Jairus had met Jesus before. This is the same synagogue that Jesus opens the scroll of Isaiah and begins to speak. And as the ruler of the synagogue, I want you to ask yourself this question. Does he have an open heart or a skeptic's heart? In his earlier encounters with Jesus, was he friendly or sympathetic or skeptical? And clearly because he's the ruler in the synagogue, he's a man of what you would think is great faith. And where's the the child's mother? G. Campbell Morgan writes, quote, The mother did not travel with Jairus. She stayed where mothers do, by the side of the child in her illness, unquote. By the way, from Luke's gospel, we discover that the little girl is the only daughter of this mom and this dad. And by the way, also in the Gospels, Jesus never, ever shows pity or compassion or concern for the dead. His compassion is for the hearts of people who are broken and troubled. His compassion in concern is for the heart that is left empty and stinging by this great, massive loss. And I want you to focus on his face just for a moment. And now the cry comes. The cry of a father. The love of a father for his only son or child in this case. This is something clearly Jesus can identify with. Jairus is a desperate man in perhaps the most desperate moments of his life. And Jairus becomes a picture of many people who come to Christ. Jairus may not have been motivated by a love for Jesus or service to Jesus or even necessarily a great belief in Jesus. But there's this raw, naked need that wells up inside of him. Despair is often the first chapter in the book entitled Grace. Remember, he's an important official. He's a chief administrator. He is connected with the things of faith and and worship, but now he comes and he is selfless and he is in a position prostrate. And by the way, what we've already learned in the book of Mark is that the religious leaders have gone on record. We don't trust Jesus. We don't want Jesus. We don't believe in Jesus. And we, given an opportunity, are going to get rid of Jesus. The ruling elders in 
the synagogue served as both judge and attorney and advisor and confidant. Jairus was the kind of person that people went to for guidance and counsel. But pain and sorrow and desperation has brought him to a place where he thought he would never be at the feet of Jesus. And now he's willing to lay aside everything. His pride, his dignity, his friends, the religious leaders, security, fame, authority, none of it matters. Because his little girl, she's sick. She's in trouble. You know, there's a Chinese proverb that says, a day of sorrow is longer than a month of joy. And so it is. Jean-Paul Richter wrote, quote, joys are our wings and sorrows our spurs. Isn't it funny how sorrow seems to last so long and joy seems so fleeting? Now imagine the excruciating pain as he's forced to stop. As Jesus begins to deal with another issue of sorrow, another person's pain, a desperate woman with her own sorrow. By the way, will the interruption ruffle the Savior? Will the interruption even ruffle Jairus? What about you? How do you react when your plan and your prayer seems delayed? How do you deal with interruption? How do you deal when you're going in a particular place and you have a particular plan and you have a specific desire and all of a sudden the doors are closed to you? It could be as simple as a red light and you mutter underneath your breath. Oh, I wish that light was green and you forget that when it's red for you, it's green for somebody else. How about when the pathway up ahead is cordoned off? And you see the police car and you see the ambulance and you realize you're going to be 15 minutes late to work. And it never occurs to you, even for a moment, that the person lying on the side of that road is somebody's son and somebody's daughter. And the delay that they're about to experience is going to have consequences forever. Do you see the interruptions that take place In your life as a waste of time or do you see it as a divine appointment that's been established to you by God? The interruption, look what it says, Jesus and the woman in verse 25. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. Doctors, nurses, let's take out her file. We're going to open up her case history. And we read in today's English version, quote, hmm, there was a woman who had suffered terribly from severe bleeding for 12 years, even though she had been treated by many doctors. She had spent all of her money, but instead of getting better, she just got worse all the time, unquote. No doubt she'd sacrificed everything in search of relief. As a matter of fact, It says, and had suffered many things from many physicians. And by the way, in Luke's gospel, he omits that little detail. She was isolated. She was alone. She was an outcast. And you may not know the reason why. As a matter of fact, when you look in the Bible and you go back to Genesis and you make your way through Exodus and you come to Leviticus chapter 15, there in verse 19, you read this. If a woman has a discharge and the discharge from her body is blood, she shall be set apart seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. 
Everything that she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean. Also, everything she sits on shall be unclean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And if any man lies with her at all so that her impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days. And every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Unclean, not just a day and not just a week and not just a month and not just a year and not even two years and not even three years but seven years go by and there's no touch of a husband and every single spiritual celebration she's barred from she can't walk into the synagogue she can't go to Jerusalem she can't offer a sacrifice she can't participate with anyone Because of her embarrassing, shameful disease, 12 years, prognosis, not good. And look what it says in verse 27. When she heard about Jesus. When she heard about Jesus. What do you suppose she heard? There's this amazing man and he has power over disease and demons and even death itself. There is this a man, this amazing man. There's this amazing person that if you can just get close enough to him, if you can just touch him, he is a powerful man and a miracle worker. And if you can get close to him, you can get well. When she heard about Jesus. What else do you suppose she heard? John Newton is most famous for the song that we sang at worship. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. But he wrote hundreds of songs. One, he wrote, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrow, heals his wounds, and drives away his fears. And she's wondering... She's speculating. She's thinking about the shameful and embarrassing circumstance. She knows that if the people knew that she was unclean, they would part the crowd like the Red Sea. And in verse 28, she says, if only, if only, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Faith includes the confidence, but at times it means that you have to do something. I want you to see the picture again. Here is this miserable woman, isolated, alone, impoverished. She's on the skirts of Jesus, if you will. She sees the garment that he's wearing. And he, she sees the border of blue around the hem of his robe. And the tzitzit, the, the talit, the talitim, that the, these are, are the cords that hang the tassels, if you will, from the corners of the garment. It, too, is found in Numbers chapter 15, verse 38. There, the Lord says, speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and put a blue thread in the tassel of the corners because the blue was like the ocean, which then became like the sky, which was the place where God ruled and reigned. Blue was the color of the sovereignty and the majesty of God. And it says, and you shall have the tassel. That you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. In other words, that tassel that hung from the robe of Jesus was meant to draw a person's attention and remind them of the obligations and the commandments of God. And she is there and she's at the end and she sees the robe and she's looking at the tassels. And it says in Numbers chapter 15, and you shall have shall have the tassel and that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own eyes are inclined and that you may remember and do all the commandments and be holy for your God. And she knows that she's not holy. Holy. 
she's unclean and embarrassed. And she sees the very end. And she grabs a hold of the cord. By the way, it's only four strings woven together. And she touches it for a brief moment. And it says in verse 29, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around and in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? By the way, whenever you see God asking a question in the Bible, whenever you see Jesus in the New Testament asking a question, is it because he doesn't know the answer? That can't be. He knows the answer. And so you need to be very, very careful when Jesus asks you a question. It isn't because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he's inviting you. He's drawing you out to participate with him in the answer to the question. Jesus wants to correct what might turn out to be a superstitious idea. The idea that somehow clothing has magical qualities and this isn't magic. This is faith. This is wholeness and wellness based on the reality of a true and living God. In verse 31, but his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? Who hasn't? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. What do you think the whole truth is? It's the whole story. She's telling him the story. I had this affliction and I've had it for a very long time. And now my husband is gone and my children are gone and my family is gone and even my faith is gone. I haven't been able to go to shul. I haven't been able to go to synagogue. I haven't been able to go to the temple. I haven't been able to participate in any of the prayers or any of the sacrifices. And I have been unclean. And the truth is that that if even the people knew at this very moment that they had come in contact with me, that it would render them unclean, that it would... It would just close the door to any kind of hope or redemption or or healing that I might be able to participate in. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Listen carefully. She's already healed of. The temporary affliction. She's already been healed of the physical circumstances of of her life. What is Jesus making reference to? I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus was not content to simply be her healer. He wants to be the Lord and he wants to be the Savior. A.W. Tozer wrote, quote, God shows himself not to reason, but to faith and love. Faith is an organ of knowledge and love is an organ of experience. To know God is not through reason nor simply through emotion, but by faith and love. In other words, this isn't something you just simply think about or even something that you simply feel. It's a willing to trust and really believe the truth about Jesus. I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus exposes the woman for two, maybe even three reasons. He wants to give her an opportunity to declare what Jesus has done for her. And then Jesus gives her this public opportunity to acknowledge what Jesus has done for her. But by the time Jesus is done speaking, she experiences something way more important than a physical healing. It's a restoration to wholeness and wellness. It's an internal cleansing that changes you forever. The woman wanted to slip away and get lost in the anonymity of the crowd. But Jesus basically says, stop. There's something happening here and I need you to participate in it. 
tenderly he elicits from her this wonderful testimony about what the Lord has done for her. Maybe it was for Jairus. His daughter is so close to death. He needs all the encouragement he can get. He needs to participate and see what Jesus can really do. But maybe there's another reason. Maybe there's another reason that Jesus stopped the woman. Maybe it was because of the onlookers. Jesus has been jostled and pressed and pushed and shoved. And a lot of people have gotten close to Jesus, but only one person has touched him. And maybe you've come and jostled and pressed and pushed in order to make your way into the sanctuary and find exactly the right seat that was exactly right for you. And you're wondering whether or not you should even ask Jesus for help. It's exactly like us. We get close to Jesus, but are we really touching him? Is there something unclean and embarrassing in your life? Some secret embarrassing sin that you desperately want Jesus to address and you desperately want him to cleanse you and you desperately want him to heal you. And you're wondering if you should even dare talk to him. About that empty place in your heart. Maybe yours is a simple faith. And maybe yours is even a superstitious faith. But Jesus knows the truth about your heart. Whether you're willing to publicly acknowledge it. Or even privately acknowledge it. And we go immediately back into the story of Jesus and the little girl. Look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, that is, he was talking with the woman with the issue of blood, telling her about the reality of what's happening, about how her faith has made her whole and that she can go in peace. It says some came from the ruler of the synagogue and said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? In a single sentence, Jairus experiences the depths of sorrow and the depths of hope. Your little girl is dead. You know, one of the difficult jobs that I have as a chaplain for the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Department and the Denver Police Department and the FBI is that sometimes I'm called upon to make really difficult visits. And sometimes in those difficult visits, I have to tell a mother, I have to tell a father that their son or daughter is dead. Sometimes I have to tell a brother or a sister, a family member or a friend that their loved one is dead. And every kind of response that you can imagine, I have seen it. From stoic silence to heartbreaking screams convulsions and sobs. In the ancient world, men speculated about what happened when you die. Ascalaeus said, once a man dies, there is no resurrection. The Roman philosopher Catalyst, when once our brief light sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep. Theocratus wrote, quote, there is hope for those who are alive, but those who are dead are without hope. I did a funeral once for a woman whose daughter died tragically. And I tried to comfort her and I tried to help her and I tried to minister to her and I tried to pray with her and I tried to give her hope and comfort and faith and confidence that a real Jesus was really alive and that he rose from the dead and that she could have complete confidence in the truth that her her daughter was in heaven with Jesus. And she looked at me and she said, I don't believe you. She said, I guess I'm going to have to bury my little girl and pretend like I never even had her. 
Can you imagine the darkness? Can you imagine the emptiness? Can you imagine the overwhelming sorrow? How different for the Christian. Charles Kingley sums it up. He says, it is not darkness you're going to because God is light. It is not lonely for Christ is with you. It is not the unknown country because Jesus is there. In verse 36, it says, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken. And by the way, the word translated heard means literally to hear beside. It's the Greek word para, kuo. In later times, the word meant to hear without heeding or not to pay attention. Literally, it, it, it was a word that meant overhear or listening in. As soon as Jesus heard, he was listening in to the reality that the daughter was dead, but he didn't believe it. As a matter of fact, in the only other place in the New Testament where the word appears, Matthew eighteen seventeen twice, it means to neglect to hear. The idea is either number one, Jesus heard it and said it's not true, or he overheard it and he's going to be able to, to deal with it. And as he deals with it, he says to the ruler of the synagogue, don't be afraid. Only believe. Can you imagine Jairus? Believe what? What is it that you want me to believe? I just found myself at your feet desperately wanting you to heal my daughter from this illness. What are you asking me to believe? That you can make dead people alive? What are you asking me to believe? By the way, whenever Jesus says, don't be afraid, whenever Jesus says, only believe, do you know what he's asking you to believe? He's asking you to believe him. He's asking you to believe the truth about him. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus asks you every single day. Will you believe the truth about me? And what is the truth about him? I came from heaven. I've come to the earth in order to die a sacrificial death on a cross for sin and rise from the dead. Here's the story. God has sent me here for you. Don't be afraid. Jesus had come, Jairus had come to Jesus in the hopes of healing. And now Jesus challenges him to believe something way more difficult. This is a radical call and a radical development of faith for Jairus. Have you ever come to Jesus with a certain expectation? Jesus, I need this. And Jesus says, no, I need you to believe me for something way more important. I need a job. I need my marriage to be different. I need hope. I need help. I need healing. You know, it's one thing to believe for healing and it's another thing to believe for life. It's one thing to believe that Jesus can wash away your sin and forgive your sin. And it's another thing to believe that he can give you the strength and the grace to live at the very moment that you find yourself in right at this very moment. And I want you to imagine the aching heart of Jairus. As he considers the prospect. Of going home. To his wife and praying over the dead, lifeless body of his daughter. And Jesus says, What's it going to be? Fear or faith? What's it going to be? And we've already learned. That the moment that you believe God cares, there's something amazing that happens. The fear begins to leak away. 
believing God really cares and will really deliver us through all of circumstances erases the fear because the truth is if God cares about you, if he cares about your life and he cares about your family and he cares about your marriage and he cares about your job and he cares about your circumstances. Then you don't have to be afraid anymore. But if God doesn't care about your life and he doesn't care about your marriage and he doesn't care about your family and he doesn't care about your future. Then you're justified to live in terror. Because the only thing that you can count on is yourself and the people around you and make no mistake about it. They will let you down. And so faith sees the invisible. It believes the incredible. It receives the impossible. Because you see, faith is sometimes more than just simply believing God can do something. It's believing that God will do this. And in verse 37, and he That is, Jesus permitted no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and he saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. The the Greek word for tumult, phorobos, it means it means uproar. It's like a circus. And if you're unfamiliar with with Jewish mourning patterns, when a person dies, the body is never left unattended. When a person dies, they'll take a thin gossamer film and they'll cover the body. And there are guardians, they're called, who attend the body at all times. From the moment that the person dies to the moment the person is entombed, they're with them always. And in that culture, in that society, there were professional mourners and professional wailers and weepers. And for them, they saw it as a religious duty in order to mourn on behalf of the person who had passed away. And they saw it as a great, great opportunity to get brownie points in heaven with God because the dead person couldn't reward you in any way. And by the way, in the Jewish culture, you never do things around the dead that they can't do. And what can a dead person do? Nothing. And in verse 39, it says when he came in and by the way, there would be a mikvah, a place of washing and the rabbi would come and he would cleanse his hands. And everyone who came into the into this home would have cleansed their hands and they walked to the place where the little girl lies. And he says in verse 39, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And look at verse 40 and underline the first four words. And they ridiculed him. The word originally meant to mock. And it carried with it the idea of they got right into his face and they laughed out loud. Because the professional mourners had been to many homes where people had died. They had been to many circumstances where people had died. And over and over and over again, when they went to a place where a person was dead, do you know how often they came back to life? Never! But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha, Kumi. In the Aramaic language, that means little girl. I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked for she was 12 years of age. By the way, how many years did the woman have the flow of blood? Twelve. How old was the little girl? Twelve. Do you think it's one of those crazy little Bible coinky dinks? Or is there something about that that we should think about? 
And I'm going to suggest to you for every day of this little girl's life. When she awoke in the morning. Her mother said. Talitha. Kumi. She conceived the child and she bore the child. And every day that the child was alive, she would say, honey, it's time to get up. Honey, my little baby, my little princess, I need you to get up. It's time to get up. It's time to live your life for every day, every day, every week, every month, every year. She is the daughter of a person who loves her and tenderly waits on her. Spurgeon would say, a little faith will bring your soul to heaven and a great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Listen to the word of faith. Don't be afraid. Believe. Listen to the word of hope. She's not dead. She's asleep. Listen to the word of love and power. Kumi, little girl, get up. Unbelief laughs at God's word. Unbelief isn't afraid to get right into Jesus's face and say, I don't believe you. And then Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do. He is going to bring life where there is death. And he is going to bring a future where there was no future. Because you see, death really is only sleep for the body until the moment of the resurrection. And the spirit of the believer leaves their body, it says in James 2.26, and goes to be with Jesus. And it says, but he commanded them strictly that no one should should know it and said that something should be given to her to eat. So why does Jesus give this strict prohibition? Because Jesus has no desire to attract people for the wrong reason. You see, the message of Jesus isn't simply imparting healing for healing's sake. And it isn't even imparting life for life's sake. It's spiritual healing and spiritual life. It is a sense of redemption and reconciliation that that Jesus has come. He responds to faith. When you're desperate, he responds. And when you're hopeless, he responds. And that might be your story. I'm desperate. Jesus knows about desperate faith. My circumstance seems hopeless. Jesus knows about hopeless. No, you don't understand. My circumstance is dead. D-E-A-D. Dead. Jesus knows about death. You know, it could very well be that the same all-powerful Jesus who gives strength to the soul, no matter how unclean it is, remember what he's done. He speaks a word and the raging sea lies flat. He heals an outcast woman with a word. He raises a little girl from the dead with a tender and gentle expression. And it's okay. It's okay to ask him to heal your uncleanness. It's okay to ask him to cleanse and restore something embarrassing and something shameful. Ask him to make you whole. Don't be content to be a part of a crowd, content to press close, to push Jesus and shove Jesus, but never touch him. Listen to the words of Jesus one more time. Don't be afraid. Believe me. Trust me. Harry Emerson Fosdick was a liberal preacher who did say some things worth repeating every once in a while. He wrote, 
Fear imprisons and faith liberates. Fear paralyzes. Faith empowers. Fear disheartens. Faith encourages. Fear sickens. Faith heals. Fear makes useless. Faith makes serviceable. But most of all, fear puts hopelessness at the heart of life while faith rejoices in God. And that's the choice that you will make today and you will make it throughout the day. Are you going to choose to be afraid or are you going to choose to trust Jesus? Doubt sees the obstacles. Faith sees the way. Doubt sees the darkest night. Faith sees the day. Doubt dreads to take a step. Faith soars on high. Doubt questions who believes. Faith answers. I. You might be thinking about the desperate, hopeless, dead situation. And Jesus invites you to love him and to trust him and to believe him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for that empty heart. Lord, I pray that you would fill it. The guilty heart, I pray that you would forgive it. The desperate heart and the hopeless heart and the dead heart, I pray that you would give faith and hope and life. Lord, we know that each person is given a measure of faith. And for the person, Lord, who has chosen to live a life apart from you, And trusting you and dependence upon you, Lord, I pray that even now in their heart, they would give up. And that they would say, I I need to trust Jesus and I need to know Jesus and I need to experience a life with Jesus instead of apart from Jesus. I came thinking I needed all of these other things and I was never really convinced that the biggest need that I have was forgiveness of my own sin and a way to get to heaven. And Lord, I pray that that person would search their heart and that they would cry out to you and that they would acknowledge their sin and their willingness to experience wholeness and wellness and forgiveness and cleansing. And that, Lord, you'd touch them even now. You'd heal them even now. And you'd restore them to wholeness and wellness even now and that they would begin to experience your peace and your joy and your love and confident that theirs is a real future filled with hope. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for his life, for his sacrifice, for his death, for his resurrection, that he's alive. And because he's alive, we can live. And that we can trust what he says. And that we can believe his promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.